All right, good morning. We're continuing our series through the London Baptist Confession. We've made it to chapter 19, and we are continuing in this current section of covenantal blessings, the covenantal blessings that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished and earned for us and gives to us in the gospel. Uh, We have covered all of these chapters and topics so far in regards to these covenantal blessings. Uh, Effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, saving faith, repentance, good works, perseverance of the saints, assurance of salvation. And today is part two of chapter 19 on the law of God. Now, if you'll remember from last week, I kind of gave an introduction to the law of God. Uh, I tried to convince you of the importance of this topic. Why, why do we care about the law of God? Why is it uh, important? And we spent some time on this. I'm not, I'm not going to uh, recap it in, in detail. But uh, I, made five, I gave five reasons for why this is such an important topic. Uh, because of the confessional context. Obedience is mentioned over 30 times in the confession. We need to know what that obedience is. Because of the doctrine of sin and sanctification and obedience. Part of our salvation is that we have been saved to obey. We have been called to obey. We are being sanctified and the law of God gives us insight into those doctrines. I also noted that confusion on the law of God um, historically uh, is... uh, Some of the greatest heresies of the church have been over this confusion right here. Uh, There's widespread confusion on the law of God, the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. And it's important so that we know uh, that, you know, we look at the Pharisees, we look at the Judaizers, we look at the Roman Catholic Church. uh, They're confused in part, or they're they're, uh, erroneous on the law of God. And so in the history of the church, it's important um, to distinguish and understand this doctrine. I thought uh, we talked about the cultural context. You know, love is love. Uh, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Uh, there are certain cultural things that come into play in properly knowing and distinguishing, identifying the law of God. And then the, fi- uh, the fifth and final reason why this is important is because of the redemptive historical storyline of Scripture. If we want to understand creation, if we want to understand sin, if we want to understand the work of Christ, we must understand the law of God. So from that, um, kind of recap what we, what we looked at last week. I argued that law is essentially rooted in the nature of God. That in a sense it is eternal. That the moral aspect of the law, uh, thou shalt not murder, for example... Uh, murder has always been a sin before, before the Ten Commandments, after the Ten Commandments, you know, in the Garden, um, in ancient, the ancient Near East, in Old Testament Israel, in New Covenant. The morality of the law is rooted in the nature of God. And um, understanding that, that continuity is key to understanding what the Bible reveals and teaches about the law. We identified that the moral law, the universal law, is written on the heart of man in creation. 
It is known by all people everywhere. Instinctively, even if they deny that. The substance of the moral law is contained in the Ten Commandments. And I didn't take a lot of time to defend that. If you wanted some additional resources on that, I can point you to them. Uh, but the substance, just the summary, the basic summary of the, of the moral law of God. We can, we can maybe put it this way. We're going to talk about this more. But, you know, love, love God and love neighbor is the, the most concise summary of the moral law of God. But what does love God and love neighbor look like? Well, the first four commandments teach us how to love God, and the, and the next six teach us how to love neighbor. So that's a little bit further expansion on that. Well, when you get to the New Testament, they expand upon that even more. Uh, the New Testament is, uh, anytime the New Testament talks about ethics, it's, 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 it's in many respects a sermon on the Ten Commandments. So the moral law. The universal law, it's eternal. It does not change. But then we talk about also the positive law. Positive law, we've got to distinguish this. This is rooted in particular covenantal revelation. And it may change over the period of redemptive history. For example, uh, the command to circumcise male infants was not a command from Adam to Abraham, but it was a command from Abraham until the coming of Christ, and now it's not a commandment from the coming of Christ until the end of the age. It is a particular positive law rooted in God's special revelation for the terms of the period of particular covenant. It's different than moral law. We'll talk more about that as well. But that's what we covered last week. And um, so I'm not going to talk, I guess, in a sense, um, too much more about this, although this will be the foundation that we're working from. Um, today, then, we're going to cover the rest of the chapter. I'm going to try to. It's a lot to cover. Reminding you that the first par par five paragraphs of chapter 19 provide the theology, and then paragraphs 6 and 7 apply the application. What we're going to see today is the law in Israel... In the Old Testament, contrasted with the moral law, we consider how that moral law continues the role and the function of that in the life of the believer. So that's recap, and that's what we're going to cover. I'm going to jump right in. Again, reminding you, I got a lot to cover today, so trying to get all this out of the way. Chapter 19, paragraph 3. Besides this law, which, what is this law? The moral law, commonly called the moral law or the universal law. Besides the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, His actions, His sufferings, His benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation. Time of Reformation that's appealing to the book of Hebrews, which uses that term. When Christ came, it was the time of Reformation. The New Covenant, the time of Reformation. 
And they are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. So, the Old Testament law, if you look at it this way, equals, on this paragraph, it's going to add another paragraph, but the moral law added to that was the ceremonial law. This ceremonial law was typological, prefiguring Christ, His graces, His actions, His benefits, His sufferings. What is an easy example of this that you can think of? What's an easy example of the ceremonial law that prefigured Christ? The sacrifices. The sacrifices, right? The command for animal sacrifices. The paschal lamb, right? Um, pointed toward the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So the ceremonial law pointed to Christ. And it, it, the confession says it also contained in it various moral duties. So it's not like it's entirely separate from the moral law. Right? When you committed a sin or accidentally committed a sin, there was a process of washings, of repentance, of making an offering, of making restitution. Um, So there are moral aspects contained in it, but the ceremonial law was typical, typological, temporary for Old Testament Israel. To them, also, chapter 19, paragraph 4, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people. Um, To this, the judicial laws were added to it. The judicial laws governing the nation-state, the theocracy. Um, Old Covenant Israel. Now, in this respect, this gets at the three divisions of the law of God. The Old Testament law contained... The moral law, plus the ceremonial law, plus the civil law. This is what made up the Old Testament law. So you had morality, thou shalt not murder. You had ceremonies, make regular animal sacrifices as an offering for sin. And you have judicial, which govern the nation state. Civil laws. But notice, the confession says, the ceremonial laws were only appointed for a time. They were positive laws. Remember that distinction. And they were abrogated and taken away. We are no longer under the obligation to fulfill any ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Any of them. Despite what the Roman Catholic Church may say. The judicial laws expired with the state of that people, with the end of the Old Covenant, with the end of the nation of Israel. And they don't oblige anyone now. By the virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. I'm going to explain that in a minute. The judicial laws are gone as well. 
were not under obligation to obey any of the judicial laws of ancient Israel. But the moral law, paragraph 5, forever binds everyone. Justified persons as others, Christian and non-Christian. It binds them to obedience. And not only regarding the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the Creator who gave it. On the basis that the moral law comes from God and is based upon God, it obligates all. And just because you are a Christian and being in Christ and in the Gospel does not in any way dissolve that obligation, but actually strengthens it. The moral law forever binds all. So, here, again, think about this threefold division of the law. Does the ceremonial law continue beyond the arrival of Jesus Christ? No, it does not. Does the civil law continue beyond the expiration of the Old Covenant? No, it does not. Does the moral law continue into the New Covenant? Yes, it does. That's what the confession is saying. But of course, we've got to defend that. <laughs> there are many people who say, oh, it's the Old Covenant, all of it's out. Old Testament, all of it's out. Don't talk about this moral aspect of the law. Don't talk about the Ten Commandments. It's all out. You can't make this threefold division. That's arbitrary. Well, what do we say to this? How do we respond? Um, a couple of notes first. Um, the threefold division of the law is deeply Catholic. And by Catholic, I mean small c, not Roman Catholic, but universal. Um, all Christians, all Christians, from the very earliest of days, down to the present day, have recognized a threefold division of the law and that the moral continues. This is not something unique to Reformed theology. It's not something unique to Protestantism. It's not something unique to the East or the West. Only recently have we have really American biblicists, and I don't mean to offend anyone by that, but dispensationalists, New Covenant theologians, uh, other forms of biblicism, where they reject it, um, it, that's, if you reject it, it's very, very recent. And, and that's not an argument in a, that, that, that is obviously airtight, but it needs to be noted. Because if you dive into the history, you, you're really out on a limb if you reject this threefold division. But that's not enough. Um, the threefold division is also seen in Judaism. But what I'm going to argue is, most importantly, we see the threefold division in Scripture. And that's a key that I want to keep coming back to when we talk about the law of God. And when we talk about hermeneutics, how to interpret Scripture, the Bible teaches us how to interpret the Bible. The Bible teaches us how to interpret the Bible. And that's really, really, really key. I want to demonstrate this. I'm going to give you five or six 
verses here. We don't have time to turn to them and read them. I'll read them from the screen here. But I want you to notice how the Scripture talks about Scripture. Hosea 6.6, the Lord says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. If we were to say the vision of the law, what category are sacrifices and burnt offerings? Ceremonial. What about love? Moral. God is saying there is something more. The ceremonial, remember, is typical. It's, 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 it's moral in regards to obeying our Creator, but it's not moral in substance. There's nothing inherently moral about offering a sacrifice. It's a positive law given for a period of time. God is saying there's something that's deeply moral, universal, that's more important than just your outward obedience to my ceremonial law. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Again, moral versus ceremonial. There seems to be a distinction here. You can't treat all laws the same. That's the argument of people who say, you can't make this division, all laws the same. Well, the scriptures don't agree. Proverbs, uh, Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees. He says, woe to them, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's not saying you don't have to obey the tithing. He's just saying, there's a distinction here, and some matters are more important than others. The moral holds the weight. Uh, we could look at other passages. We could look at Psalm 40, 6-8. We could look at Psalm 50, 8-9. We could look at Isaiah 1, 11-17. God condemns Israel for all of their outward ceremonial obedience while they neglected the, the moral aspects. I hope you see there's a working distinction here in the division of the law. But, of course, we've got to keep going. 1 Corinthians 7.19. This is what Paul says. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. <laughs> Wait a second. Circumcision is a commandment of God. What in the world is he saying? He doesn't say, well, the Old Testament counts for nothing and the New Testament counts for everything. That would have been the easy way. Right? That would have been easy for him just to say, hey, that's Old Testament, don't worry about it. It doesn't apply to you. No, the commandments of God include circumcision, Ultimately, but there's a hermeneutical framework going on here. And what we see is the apostles apply the moral aspects of the Mosaic law as binding, 
but they speak of the ceremonial and civil aspects as abrogated and fulfilled in Christ. The commandments of God, almost exclusively, without distinction, Old and New Testament refer to the Ten Commandments. That's the commandments of God. Almost exclusively, Old and New Testament, the commandments of God refer to the Ten Commandments. So, they're applying moral aspects as binding, but speaking of the ceremonial and civil as abrogated and fulfilled. Let's keep going. Well, before we do that, think of how, think of how we do this in everyday life. This, and again, what, I'm, what do we do? We distinguish in the law of God. We distinguish between moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. Um, buckle your seatbelt. Is that a moral, civil, or ceremonial commandment? Civil. civil. Right? Um, you can make an argument that, well, buckling your seatbelt, um, in some sense, maybe it saves your life and it, it's, it's a way of loving other people, right? So that you don't um, die in a minor car crash, so that paramedics aren't traumatized by the accident. Okay, but ultimately, buckling your seatbelt is a civil commandment. There's nothing inherently moral in it. It would not exist outside of this current nation state in automobiles. What about be baptized? Is that moral, civil, or ceremonial? Ceremonial. There's nothing inherently moral about being baptized. Baptism didn't exist. Well, I would argue it it began to exist in the, the Old Testament priesthood. And that's the prerequisite of New Testament baptism. I mean, circumcision is not the prerequisite of New Testament baptism. This means that infants ought not to be baptized. <laughs> That's another topic for another day. Uh, we see it in the priesthood, but ultimately it did not exist until God commanded it. There's nothing moral to it. It's ceremonial. What about speaking the truth to your neighbor? Is it a sin? Excuse me. Is it, is it against the law of the United States or the state to... Tell a lie to a friend. I mean, some lies can be against the law, right? If you commit fraud or something. But just in general, lying to someone is not a civil sin. Is it a breaking of the ceremonial law? I suppose if you lied in some aspect of worship, but generally speaking, it's not. It's a moral law. We instinctively know and operate on these categories in everyday life. This isn't just making something up and imposing it upon the Old Testament. The Old Testament spoke that way. The New Testament spoke that way. We speak that way. It's natural. There are categories of law that are, that are obvious in nature. I don't even need to prove them to you. Everybody knows them and operates on that basis already. And that's what what we're doing with the Old Testament law. There's a distinction here. 
Um, I'm going to come back to this a little bit. We'll expand upon this a little bit more. But if you think about the ceremonial law, um, generally speaking, the abrogation of the ceremonial law is never really questioned among Christians. Uh, we all know that, you know, we don't have an altar up here. I'm not a priest, despite what the Roman Catholic Church says. Uh, we don't offer animal sacrifices. We don't, all, we don't obey the Old Testament ceremonial law. Um, but what about the civil law? I'm going to briefly touch on this because it's kind of a hot topic nowadays. It's a hot topic nowadays because, mainly because this nation, which was founded on general Christian principles, uh, I would argue that we were never a Christian nation. And don't fight me over that, but I don't believe that. I don't read that in the Founding Fathers. We were never an explicitly Christian nation, but we were a nation that was founded on Christian principles or perhaps a Christian kind of uh, uh, ethical worldview. But now that the nation of America is turning to such dark and twisted, a dark and twisted direction, a lot of people are trying to revive the Old Testament civil law and argue that the nation state should be modeled after the nation state of Israel. Um, have you ever heard of theonomy or reconstructionism? Theonomy just really means God's law. Theonomy is the belief that the Old Testament civil code ought to be the law of the land here in America or in any nation. Reconstructionism is kind of the same thing. Reconstruction, this, the civil society to match the civil law of the Old Testament. Um, I believe that these errors are very serious. These are not secondary matters. But that's for another day. My point today is just to show you they're not confessional. In fact, theonomy doesn't find its way into any Reformed confession. It is entirely outside the Reformed tradition. Even though, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there. Um, again, heard someone talk about aspects of the Old Testament civil code should apply to modern day America. Maybe you've heard someone say, well, you know, homosexuals were stoned in the Old Testament, therefore that should be the law of the land here. Maybe you've heard them speak about just justice and punishment or uh, uh, laws on loaning money or property and say, oh, that's God's revelation. That's that's, that's God's telling us how the state should function. Um, again, this is not a Sunday school series on theonomy. I'll have to deal with that another time. Um, but those, those statements and those beliefs are not rooted at all in the Reformed tradition, and I would argue they're very dangerous. The Old Testament Israel was a temporary, typological nation state God did not reveal the civil code as insight into all civil code 
It was only for the purposes of that period of redemptive history. And we make a very serious error when we pull those in and try to say, this is how God tells us the state should be run. It was never the purpose of it. So, but my point, again, is not to interact with those arguments, but just to show you what the confession says. These judicial laws expired. They don't oblige anybody. There's no nation state that is obliged, that is obligated to obey any of the Old Testament civil code. By virtue of that institution, I'll deal with that in a second, their general equity only being of moral use. What does this mean? What does general equity mean? What does moral use mean? Anybody want to take a stab at it? What is the confession saying? Richard? You can use them as moral lessons or as general ideas of what's the right direction. Yes, that's a great way of putting it. General lessons, moral uh, pulling the moral ideas out of them. It's not enough to say that. We gotta we gotta prove this from scripture, don't we? 1 Corinthians 9.8 Paul is answering the question of ministerial compensation. He's making the argument that pastors ought to be paid for their labors. Listen to what he says. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law also say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Think with me here. Keep in mind everything that we've talked about so far. Paul cites the Old Testament law as binding and authoritative. How easy. Why would he say, does not the law also stay the same if all the Old Testament is just to be thrown out? That's the Old Testament. and We don't have to obey that. No, he cites the law as having teeth. He says the law was written for us, ultimately. Not for them, but for us. Yet he cites a civil law, a judicial law, related to the proper treatment of animals. Part of the civil code was a proper treatment of animals. We have that in our day as well. You can go to jail for animal abuse. Ask um, Michael Vick. (laughs) You guys know who that is, football player. Abused dogs. Went to jail, went to prison for it. But Paul cites a civil law. But Paul, the Old Testament civil law doesn't apply to us. Well, you're right, it doesn't. But he says, was God ultimately talking about animals? Is that why he gave that law? No. There is a moral principle therein that Paul pulls out of it and applies it. That's the general equity. 
If God commanded that animals ought to be treated properly, wouldn't we expect and pull out from that that God would say, treat people properly? If it's proper to treat an animal by feeding a hardworking animal, isn't it proper to treat a person by properly compensating a hardworking person? That's his argument. He's pulling the moral principle out of it, even though the shell, the husk of, of the civil commandment, was typical for that period and doesn't apply in the same way. See what he's doing? This models for us how to rightly use the law. The scriptures teach us how to rightly use the law. That's why we can pull from an Old Testament passage and say this still applies, not in the same way. There's a moral principle there, and this is the law of God. An example could be homosexuality. Do not lie with a man as you lie with a woman. Um, not to get graphic, but first thing that comes to my mind, the um, bestiality is not commit. Is not talked about in the New Testament. It is in the Old Testament. There are many things that are talked about in the Old Testament that aren't mentioned in the New. If you just throw out the Old, you, you don't have a complete ethic. We need scripture to teach us how to, mock, how to interpret the law. Uh, one more example. 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the uh, same, same topic, elder compensation. I promise I don't have a hidden agenda here. It's just the easiest, easiest passage to run to here. Let the elders who rule well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Where does this second laborer deserves his wages come from? Who said that? Brian? It is in Luke. It is in Luke. But who, who said it? Jesus. He cites both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which shows us the continuity between them. The Scripture says, Old Testament, New Testament. One command is clearer than the other, but they both say the same thing. We learn how to properly apply the law from the example of the apostles in Scripture. The undergirding and defense for all of the New Testament ethics is the Old Testament. And you can run there and get them as well. We just have the further light of the New Testament to help us. All right, man, I, I'm really going to have to speed through this last part. we got to finish. Um, but to conclude, the ceremonial law prefigured Christ. It was fulfilled in Him. The civil law expired with the end of the Old Covenant. The moral law, including the moral principles in those other two laws, continue, forever binds all. It binds both Christians and non-Christians because God is the one who gave it and it's based upon His nature. And the gospel does not weaken, but actually strengthens our obligation to obey. And that's where the confession goes next. In chapter 19, paragraph 5. The moral law forever binds all. Um, I went through these last week. I'll just put them up there. I'm not going to read them again. 
Uh, Romans 13, 8 through 10, four of the Ten Commandments are cited, and any other commandment is referenced. James 2, 8 through 12, two of the ten um, are cited, and uh, as uh, rebuking and correcting the church, pointing how we are called to fulfill the royal law, talked about as well. James speaks of the law as a unit. If you break one, you break them all. It cannot. You can't just accept one commandment and drop another of the ten commandments. Uh, that includes the Sabbath. And uh, Matthew five seventeen as well. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What commandments is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. It's an exposition of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the book of James also, scholars recognize, is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Um, how does then, the question that we move to now, how does this moral law apply to us? That's what paragraph 6 and 7 answer. Paragraph 6, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others. I'm not going to read the rest of it because I'm going to read the rest of it as we work through it. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works. And that's key. The law hasn't changed from Old Testament to New Testament. But our relationship to the law has changed in Christ. We are not Old Testament Israel. We are not in that same situation. The law doesn't apply to us like it applied to them. The law to them was a covenant of works. I'm going to refer you back to our series on covenant theology. But for us, we see in Christ the law fulfilled. And it comes to us differently. That's why James calls it the law of liberty. A beautiful statement. The law, but it's liberty. There's, there's liberty in it. Because we have been liberated by the work of Christ. Paul says that the law is useful if one uses it lawfully. In the sense that it exposes sin and corrects behavior. The law cannot justify us. The law cannot condemn us. Because it's been fulfilled and obeyed for us in Christ. That's the key statement right there. You can't be saved by the law. The law can't condemn you in Christ. It has no authority over you. You're dead to it. Or it's dead to you. Whatever you want to say. Right? Paul makes that uh, reference in uh, Romans 7. And he also says, look. In marriage, if a spouse dies, that's it. Well, you know what? You've died to the law. That's broken. You don't have that relationship with them anymore. But it's still useful, even though it doesn't justify or condemn. It's useful as a rule of life, informing us of the will of God and our duty, and directs and binds us to walk according to it. The law is God's revelation to us, teaching us how to live, what God's will is for our life, and what pleases Him. 
The law given to us in Christ, received from His hands, binds and obligates us to walk in obedience to it. It's not optional. It's also of great use because it helps us discover also the sinful pollutions of our natures, hearts and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin. It's a helpful tool of self-examination. It exposes and reveals sin. It shows where we've gone astray. It reveals where we're living outside of His will, where we are grieving the Holy Spirit. And so when the law properly used, it humbles us and leads us to a holy hatred of sin. It's a great use to them because it gives a clearer sight of the need that we have for Christ and the perfection of His obedience. The law points us to Christ. It points us to Him by showing us our need of Him. And that that never ends in life. Even though it doesn't justify or condemn us, it still comes to us and reveals all of these things in us and, and, and where we fail so that we see with a greater, clearer, and more glorious view Christ and Him crucified on our behalf. We see His character, we see His obedience, and this leads to worship and adoration and comfort and assurance and love. Love for Him. It is a great use because it restrains our corruptions. It serves to help restrain the flesh. Um, Think of an example here of murder in our society. Right? Think of if murder wasn't against the law. How many more murders there, there would be? Like, there is a restraining in our society of murder because people are scared by the consequences that it would bring. The law shows us, in some sense, what sin deserves, that's where it goes next, and helps restrain the flesh. It helps restrain the corruptions of our flesh. The threatenings of it show what our sins deserve, what afflictions in this life we may expect if we break the law, even though we've been freed from the curse. The point here is that the threatenings of the law serve a temporal and not an eternal purpose. And this is where many Christians go astray. Legalism, we're still under the spiritual and eternal threatenings of a law, such as, if I sin, I may go to hell. That's legalism. If I fall back into sin, I'm under the condemnation of the law. That's not what the confession says. It says the law only serves what afflictions that you may expect in this life. You know, if you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. If you speed, eventually you're going to get a speeding ticket. You reap what you sow. But that's all temporal. In Christ, none of the eternal threatenings or curses have any relation to us. Same thing with the promises. The promises show what blessings we may expect from the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, but man's doing and refraining from evil, because the law encourages the one and deterreth the other, 
is no evidence of being under the law and not under grace. The confession is saying here, there is a temporal purpose to the promises in many respects as well. Careful obedience is not legalism. It doesn't mean that you're under the law and not under grace. But what matters here is the heart, the motivation. The motivation to obey the law is not because we will get blessing from it, but because we love God, we love Christ, and we want to bring Him glory. And then the conclusion, none of this uses of the law are contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. Paragraph 7, the Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which is the will of God revealed in the law required to be done. The law and the gospel are carefully distinguished. They are contrary to one another, but they work together. That's the point. They serve different purposes, but toward the same end. The law prescribes and enjoins what is to be done and forbids what is to be avoided. The gospel is different because it announces the free remission of sin through and for the sake of Christ. The law is known by nature. The gospel is divinely revealed. The law promises life under the condition of perfect obedience. The gospel promises life on the condition of faith. Distinguishing between law and gospel. All right. To wrap this up, and we are done. (laughs) What is the law of God? It's the Ten Commandments. Summarized at Sinai with further light and expansion given in the New Testament. Summarized even more in Love God and Love Neighbor. Summarized even more in love. But love has to be defined. Do note that the ten are negative, aimed at correcting and restraining sin, because it was a covenant of works. But the focus of the New Testament is on the positive aspects of the law. Your homework today is to go home and read the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Ten Commandments. And you will see that in that, their expansion of it, how the Ten Commandments cover every aspect of obedience and morality that God expects of us. Uh, I had some questions for you. We no longer have time. What does Jesus in the New Testament mean when he says, A new commandment I give to you, to love one another. Uh, Well, because love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is further light into what the law means. Love is embodied and exemplified in Jesus And in that sense, it's new because we have a person, the new Adam, beautifying it and showing us what it looks like. It's not new as if it was never commanded before. So, distinguish between positive and moral law. Um, I I will say as well, this is key to the issue of baptism and worship. Old Testament, New Testament relationship. Baptists do not build a case of infant baptism off of circumcision because circumcision is positive law not moral law positive law is bound by the terms of the covenant 
which is also why we would say infant baptism is a violation of the regular principle of worship, because you can't go to the old covenant for principles of worship. That's a violation of the regular principle. So, distinguish between moral law and positive law. That's really, really key. Um, I was going to ask you if the Sabbath was moral or positive or both. The answer is it's both. The morality of it, rooted in God's nature, he rested. The positive aspect of it, it was the seventh day revealed in the Old Testament, the first day of the week in the New Testament. That's for another day. Uh, We don't have time for questions. I told you I had to get through this. Uh, Come talk to me if you have any other questions afterwards. Um, And thank you for your...